Something Samson looked at it through other people's eyes. Take some time and reflect on what you believe in your soul. Cause that is the key to life. You gotta let the negativity go. Hello and welcome to What the Fox Podcast with your two hosts, Lindsay Fox and Amber Ross. Before we get started today, Lindsay and I want to remind you that What the Fox is happily sponsored by Therapy Appointment. Therapy Appointment is a practical tool for starting, growing, and managing a practice made built for therapists by therapists. And we are also equally happy supported and sponsored by Lindsay's coaching business, Conscious Healers. That's right. Thank you, Amber. All right, y'all, we have yet another amazing guest speaker joining us today, and I am so thrilled and truly humbled to have her join us today. Uh, So you are going to meet and hear all about Katherine Manning. She is the president of Blackbird DC, which provides training and consultation on empathy at work, y'all. Empathy. Ah, Let's get into that, right? (laughs) So she is the author of The Empathic Workplace. Here's her book for those of y'all who watch us on YouTube. Highly recommend it. We're going to get right into it today. Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job. And teaches at American University as well, guys. So she actually teaches within the Master's in Trauma-Informed Leadership Program at Dominican University, which is incredible because just the fact that there's a master's program out there that does this... um, already tells us as listeners that we're moving in the right direction, which is so cool. Uh, So with that being said, Catherine has worked on issues of trauma and victimization for more than 25 years. She has lots of experience and lots of words of wisdom that we can take away from just her lived experience, but also really understanding the legal side of things provided she has gone to law school and learned a thing or two. (laughs) Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. It is so fun to be here with you both, Amber and Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Of course. We are obviously very thrilled, very excited. And I have to say, um, Lindsay gave me a little bit of a teaser before we started recording and said that she wanted to share how she met Catherine. And I realized that we've yet again bumped into a situation where I have no (laughs) idea how someone has come into Lindsay's like stratosphere. So tell me all the things. How did you find Catherine? Oh, well, actually, I kind of feel like Catherine found me. She just didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) So funny enough, uh, this was probably a year ago, maybe down to the day, to be completely honest, Um, or it could have been March. But anyway, um, I had been... Uh, for those of y'all who have been our loyal listeners, you would already know this, but I am very, very passionate about trauma-informed law. I'm mm-hmm. very passionate um, as, a, as a therapist who sees lots of different clients from different walks of lives and working with um, low-income populations. I see a lot of re-victimization within the legal system. And uh, it has been something that, especially during the pandemic, with a lot of people who lost their jobs or were just really depleted of resources, um, I I got even, I became even more passionate about this topic. Um, So uh, throughout the pandemic, I started to do a little bit more research and simultaneously was going through a tumultuous divorce, which involves the legal system. And through that, I found Catherine's book, The Empathic Workplace. 
And this was already while well, it's kind of toying in my mind, like, you know, I'd love to do some type of program or, or figure out a way where I can connect with attorneys um, and, and supporting them with becoming more trauma informed on how to advocate for their clients. Um, because, and, and from what I have seen from a different perspective, it's just the fact that there's a lot of attorneys that they know the law book, right? They know what they're taught in law school, but they really don't understand psychology and the law and the role of trauma and how that affects how a person or a defendant may show up or, you know, so anyway, I started to work on this program and Catherine's book became like this, uh, bright light where I was like, oh my gosh, this woman totally gets it. <laughs> I love that. She totally gets it. You guys, she gets it. <laughs> and she's here with us now, like a uh, holy oh. full circle moment. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Right. So let me, to connect the dots there, it's because, um, this is even crazier how the world and the universe conspires. Uh, somehow I met Deb Regal, who is the author, who, who, well, we actually had her for an episode called Go to Help in season one. Y'all should check it out. That's one of her books. But Deb and I met and I was telling her about how passionate I was about this topic. And she said, oh my gosh, you know what? You remind me so much of my friend, Catherine. You, she wrote this book that is exactly what you're talking about. You've got to meet Catherine. She's just such a lovely woman. You've got to meet her. I can hear and him saying that. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> and that's how we met. And here we are. That's it right. totally makes sense because Deb is like the ultimate connector. Like she is so good about introducing people, doing whatever she can to help people. So it completely makes sense mm -hmm. that she's the one who brought us together. It does. I mean, that's just, she's kind of like a little spark plug herself where she just yep. makes it all happen. <laughs> it's so true. Um, but, you know, your work really has, has stood out to me for a number of reasons because I think what has also kind of, what took me aback during my own research journey before I knew that your book existed and, and this is what brought me to find it um, was, was how little information, like how little was out there. Um, and even like in 20, you know, 2021, 20, 22, it, this really shouldn't be hard information to find. And yet everywhere I was looking, I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, here's a journal article here, here's something there, but like, there's really no like one thing that gets into all the all of it and and while yeah. this is not specific to law the the tenets of it are spot on um and and so i kind of wonder like where did your inspiration come from in the first place for you to even go in this direction and to even care about empathy in the workplace as someone who got a law degree <laughs> well i mean i should say honestly why I went to law school was because of seeing what you saw as well, right? So I was, when I was in college, I was working uh, as a volunteer on the hotline at the local domestic violence shelter. And what I saw, there was one uh, client in particular who I worked with repeatedly on the hotline who um, went through just a horrific experience with the legal system. And it's very common in um, cases of intimate partner violence where the abuser comes in and looks completely um, put together and reasonable and smart and calm and like, 
And the person who's been through the abuse is, you know, couch surfing, you know, has very little money, is nervous about saying where they live. And the abuser uses that in the system and says, oh, well, she's, you know, she's got mental health issues. You can't really count on her. She's addicted to drugs. And therefore, like, I should get full custody, you know. And it becomes another way that abusers are able to perpetrate abuse is through the legal system. Yeah. And it was seeing that play out in some of the calls and the people that I was working with that really pushed me to go to law school. So this um, idea of a trauma-informed legal system or trauma-informed care was really um, kind of at the very foundation of my career. Um, ultimately after law school, I went to the justice department and while I was there, I was the senior attorney advisor for victims rights. And what that meant is I would do training and policy and consultation on how the department worked with crime victims in just a wide array of cases, anything fraud, terrorism, human trafficking, everything that kind of came down the pike. And one of the things that I saw, DOJ is very siloed, you know, like yeah. odd prosecutors will be like, oh, well, you don't understand. Like our victims are different than everybody else's. Yeah. And and I was like the one who saw all of them. I was like, you guys, these are not like, different. Yeah. Like we're all still needs, human. Yeah. And everybody <laughs> Imagine needs that. the same things. Yeah. Everybody yeah. needs to be heard and acknowledged. Everybody needs referrals to resources. doesn't matter what you're a victim of. And then I began to realize that it wasn't just the victims in our cases who needed those things, that it was my colleagues too. If I had Mm. a colleague who, you know, I had one whose father was dying or another who was dealing with a pretty um, kind of abusive boss, right? Mm -hmm. And I realized these same skills that I'd used on the hotline way back, you know, 20 years earlier, I was using in these conversations in the office too. And I just started to realize that the lessons that I I had learned through the criminal legal system with regard to how to support victims had a much broader application. And it was really when Me Too happened that that kind of coalesced for me, I would Mm -hmm. say, Um, because I felt on the one hand, I was thrilled about Me Too because I thought these are issues I've been thinking about and caring about for so long. And I'm so glad that people are talking about them. But also in some ways, I got to admit, I was kind of angry about it. I was frustrated with the way that it played out because I feel like Me Too put so much on survivors. Like you have Mm. to share your story. Everybody needs to hear your story. I had friends texting me like, I never told anybody this. Is it my responsibility to like tell the world or I'm like letting down the side? I'm like, no, you do not owe your story to anybody. (laughs) And I got really frustrated about that. And, And I thought, you know, Me Too is really great about kind of opening up this um, perspective that there is a lot more trauma and victimization than people realized, but not, it's totally missing the other side of the equation, which is when somebody does open up to you, you have a responsibility to listen and be supportive in a certain way. And I, I just felt like that was really not there. And I also, because I have been working with a lot of lawyers, as you've been talking about, Lindsay, they're not always like the most intuitive about how to be (laughs) supportive (laughs) yeah (laughs) and so one of the things that I had been developing over the years was just like giving people language a a lot of what Mm. they needed was just like I would get a phone call from somebody it was so funny it could be this like really 
scary gang prosecutor, right? Like they are prosecuting these like terrifying people and they're yeah. so brave. And then they would call me and say, hey, um, so, you know, you told me that uh, it was up to me whether or not to offer a plea and it wasn't up to the victim. And I'd say, well, yeah, you know, that's that's right. It is your your decision to make. And he'd be like, well, so so I did offer a plea and now the victim's really mad. Will you call him for me? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I'm not going to call him for you, but I will <laughs> talk to you about how to talk to him about it. There was this fear of emotion, you know, somebody's going to yeah. yell, somebody's going to cry, yeah. and then what's going to happen? And so a lot of what I did was just like, hey, here's how to listen. Here's how to acknowledge, like mm -hmm. just trying to give people some basic, like I think of it as like mental health, like 101 or like the CPR skills, just like let's yes. get you through this conversation. Yeah. In a way that doesn't make it worse and hopefully makes it better. Absolutely. Just basic attending skills of showing empathy, which, you know, I, I know I might say that and it sounds like, you know, to me it's basic. Yeah, sure. Okay. But I, and I get that it's part of my job, but also mm -hmm. it's like, I also realize like, yes, in the legal system, you're so hardwired to think in a certain kind of a way. And you, you kind of have to have a little bit of an ego and a, that shark mindset associated with it too, to like, go get him, tiger. Um, but then when you remember it is a person on the other side, these are real humans and mm -hmm. with real families and real emotions and real ripple effects. Um, it, it changes how you realize like, wow, I should approach this a lot differently, but I don't know how. When yeah. honestly, I would say like you specifically are talking about the legal system and types of people and types of personalities, but it extends so far out of just that job description in regular business. I see day in and day out the tendency for folks to forget the human aspect of a conversation and forget that we are dealing with real people. Like, yes, we have a job to do. Yes, it is an important job to do. We have to get the things done. However, mm -hmm. we all have our own crap that we're also like holding while we're yeah. trying to do the good job, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're lifing. We're busy lifing we are on lifing. top of lifing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are all we are all humans. And I feel like that's really the key to a trauma-informed workplace or an empathetic workplace. It's just recognizing the humanity of the people that you're interacting with, whether they're your employees or your colleagues or even your clients, you know, community members that you're interacting with. Just recognize that we're all humans. And thank goodness, because we want humans doing this work, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. We do not need AI taking over this job. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, and it's so funny that um, there was another uh, guest speaker that we had come on, uh, Dr. Alicia Moreland at Kapuya, Dr. AMC, who referenced your Harvard Business Review um, article in the episode. And there's something whenever I went to her trauma informed systems change workshop that they they do over at Harvard, one of her basic attending skills, if you will, that she was talking about within the workplace was when writing an email, start by saying, Hi, so and so, I hope you are well. And then go to the next paragraph and say whatever it is that you need or want to ask or whatever it is. And I thought, wow, what a simple little change in how mm -hmm. you typically approach an email, but especially in a corporation or even an academic setting, like everything's just so quick, fast paced, hurry, hurry, but just saying, hi, I hope you are well. 
Right. Like I see you, you you exist, your feelings matter. Holy crap. I mean, it Mm -hmm. takes three seconds, but it does. I can tell you having been on the receiving end of emails that did not include that it, it sets you off a little bit to say, okay, like I understand you need something, but like, I'm not just the easy button that you press when you need information, right? Like (laughs) you could talk to me like a person too. Um, and I think this, this leads to a cool part of the conversation that I would like to learn from you, Catherine, um, other areas like that, where we can be more empathetic in our work life, where we can, um, grab simple tools to make it a more empathetic workplace. Do you have like maybe one or two that you'd be willing to talk with us through? Sure. Absolutely. I've been, um, really inspired by some of the work that I've seen different companies and organizations implementing on this front. So one of the things that I think is good is if you can have some sort of common language on your team or in your workplace that makes it um, a simple way to check in on how you're feeling that day. So it Mm. doesn't have to be, hey, I need to like make a big deal of the fact that I'm struggling right now. You just have easy language around it. So some places will do like at the beginning of staff meeting, they check in and everybody says like, I'm a, I'm a red, yellow or green today, or I'm above the line. Oh, you do? Good. Yeah. Yeah, The the Uh, zones of regulation is what we call it. It's a, I love that thing. Um, And um, Brene Brown has uh, from waiting table. She was a waitress for many years. I was, I was, I lasted two weeks at that job. I was awful at it. (laughs) It's hard. Um, It is hard work. It is so hard. She said that they, um, they called it in the weeds. Like if you're in the weeds, it means you're completely overwhelmed. And then they had one that was, and if somebody says I'm in the weeds, then the response is how can I help? And then you take things off their plate. The other expression though was I'm blown. And that means I am so overwhelmed that I can't even tell you what has to be done. And that was the sign the supervisor comes in, just takes over, assigns everything else. And the person who who kind of got to that point has to go sit in the freezer for 10 minutes. <laughs> I remember <laughs> her great? talking about that. And I loved hearing about it because it was so it was so relatable. I used to work in hotel management before I before a number of other lifetimes of careers but but I was I used to work in like operations and stuff and and doing front and back of the house operations and hotels especially like uh, five-star properties where it's like very stressful a lot of like uh high level people coming to visit and all that and we kind of had our own language as well whenever it was like I, I just like it there's a fire I can't breathe I just need to take a take a step back um where we all kind of understood, like, you got to pitch in and work together. But I agree, like identifying the language to go with that is tremendous, because then people actually know what to say and how to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's a company I've been working with a lot over the last few months, called Ketchum, they're a communications firm. And one of the things that they do is they have um, twice annual um, employee conversations. It's kind of like a performance review, but they don't call it that. It's like a career conversation. Um, And they have scripts for the manager um, where it's, you don't have to read every question, but they have prompts for them to, here is Mm. a specific question on well-being to ask. Here is a specific question around, are you getting the kind of support that you need? And Mm. I think, you know, like we were just talking about, sometimes people need very specific guidance, like 
start an email with this line. It's not that, you know, if we sat and thought about it, we wouldn't, you know, recognize that that's important. It's just, we all get very busy and super focused on what we're trying to get done. And sometimes it helps to just have that little check. You know, another one is making sure that you're checking in on your people at least once a week. And I recommend having a, a list that you go through, even if there's only three of them, because it's not, it's not that you can't keep track of three people, but the reality is we all gravitate more towards some people than others. Mm -hmm. And the list keeps you honest because if yeah. you've gotten to Thursday, you've checked in on two of them like four times and the other one you haven't spoken to at all. That's just a little nudge for you. Remember, we got to check in on this person too. And maybe we need to shift our priorities a little bit to focus on mm -hmm. them more. I agree. And I think um, the idea that we gravitate to some people more also, some people are more outspoken about their needs. Some people, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? And I think so often in my personal experience, I try extremely hard to be the quietest wheel on the cart. Like I want to have everything working. So in many cases, everybody's like, oh, Amber's got it. She's fine. Like she's good. She hasn't said anything. Um, and then I get into a situation where I am blown and I don't have the words or the capacity to tell anybody how they can help me. Yeah. So I think that as important as it is to help empower leadership, it also has that trickle down effect of empowering the team to say, okay, I can ask for help. Like that's not, it's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. I'm not, um, it doesn't mean I'm not capable. It just means that, you know what, from time to time, we all need a little help getting something across the line and having that, not even the power or the confidence, but the tool to say, yes, I would like a little help, please. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it affects everything. It affects individual well-being. It affects team cohesion and mm -hmm. trust of one another. Yes. And ultimately it affects the, the, kind of output, right? If you know that it's okay to get help rather than just kind of forcing yourself through when you're tired or feel like you don't know what you're doing mm -hmm. or are you doing this correctly, your product is never going to be as good as mm -hmm. if you have the ability to say, I could use a hand here. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's amazing what the power of safety can do for someone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>? Absolutely. <laughs> Even within the workplace. I mean, it's amazing what happens when we feel safe and secure and seen um, by people at work or within our relationships, but it's just, it, it really is a game changer. So I would imagine with the clients that you work with, uh, productivity, I, I'm just guessing productivity would increase after they apply the skills of making it a more personable workplace and empathic workspace um, for people to be in. Yeah, not only that, but turnover goes down, absenteeism goes down. I mean, there's a whole lot of really wonderful positive effects that come once you shift toward more trust and psychological safety. Big time. I'm just curious, like, is there anything that has sort of, with everything that you have seen and everything that you have heard, uh, I understand that it can kind of become easy to get desensitized to hearing some of these stories or some of these experiences where it's like, um, you know, oh, okay, like I've kind of seen this, I've seen this play out before type of thing. But is there anything that kind of, kind of still strikes you as like, wow, I like, this is a, this is a thing that people are really still struggling with, or like, there's still a heavy need for this 
this thing um, to be taught or to be shared among society today? Um, do you mean a specific, um, like a skill that a, an employee would need to have to support another? Or do you mean a, like a societal ill that people are facing? It could be either or whatever you might have an answer to or feel comfortable yeah. talking about, you know? I mean, honestly, the thing that I feel like I am constantly talking about, I guess there's two of them, um, but they're pretty related. Um, one is don't problem solve. <laughs> like it is so instinctive for so many people. And, and I feel like it is um, in particular people who are more senior in your career, like in their careers, the way you get more senior is by being really good at solving problems. Um, and we start to derive our sense of self-worth from that. And it becomes very, very difficult for people to, to kind of train themselves out of that. I was talking with a guy recently who's the head of IT at a big company. And he said he had a team member, one of his employees came to him and said, I need you to know that I'm, I'm experiencing a severe depression right now. And in fact, I am suicidal. And he said, I had no idea what to do. And I instantly went into problem solving. Like, well, mm -hmm. you know, are you working out enough? <laughs> and it's, yeah. um, it's so, uh, it doesn't make it better. Let's just say that. Yeah. Right. And, and really yeah. can make it worse. And, um, but it is so common. I just see mm -hmm. it again and again and again. And I've had people come up to me just this week after a training and say like the thing I struggle with the most is I just want to fix it. Like yeah. you, you start telling me and I'm jumping in with, here's the answer. Yeah. Um, and then relatedly boundary setting is the thing that people are really struggling with. And I, I say related because I think it's, um, if you have better boundaries, you are less likely to jump in with the solution. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It does. It goes hand in hand. It really does go hand in hand. Thank you for highlighting those two things, because I, I think those are relatable for every person, regardless if you are even working or not, is the fact that there, you know, usually that that urge to fix and to control is because we're feeling a sense of discomfort. We're feeling you know, like, I don't know, I don't really know how I feel about the situation. So let me just try to micromanage it or attack it real fast. Yes, absolutely. Like this feels very uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. So let's shift it over to more comfortable ground. I'm happy to talk about working out, <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> we can't talk about feelings. We can talk about the gym. That's right. Yes. I mean, that's, it's, it's so true. And even, even as therapists, I mean, this is converse, this is the kind of stuff that I've certainly been present with trainings on and have talked among other therapists is that uh, it's really hard for therapists to assess for suicide. Mm. I know that this sounds really bizarre and wild, but even for a therapist, it can feel really, really challenging to ask someone if they are thinking about suicide or having suicidal thoughts because it can feel so uncomfortable. And that's like the human part of being a clinician that I feel like no one ever talks about. Like right. there's so many different facets of our lived experience that no one ever talks about, uh, where there's a great deal of empathy needed within our own workspaces as well. Yeah, gosh, it's such a good point. I think there are a number of those really difficult questions that people are so um, loath to ask, but it is so important to ask yes. it. I was just um, 
I'm working right now with a university that wants to do a program on food insecurity among the student body. Wow. And part of it, like, so sure, if a student comes to you and says, I am hungry, let's make sure that you have the right response. But how do we how do we help the faculty and staff to feel comfortable saying to a student, mm. I've noticed that mm. you are struggling to stay awake or that you're, you know, kind of zoning out? Is everything okay? Do you have enough to eat? Like, mm -hmm. can we get to the place where we feel comfortable enough asking that without any, you know, like the, the discomfort will come out, right? If you feel it. Yes. So we have to help of you course. get to a place where you feel confident enough that this is really an okay question to ask. Absolutely. It is, it is so important. And what an important, um, issue too for them to be tackling. Um, yeah, I'm thrilled that they're talking about it. Yes. We actually had um, Dr. Marianne LaGreco, uh, who was a TEDx speaker. She is really well known in, her, in the food insecurity space. She's over at UNC Greensboro, but if for whatever it's worth, she'd be an amazing contact for That's you great. or your client that I'd be more than happy to connect y'all with. Uh, but we did an episode with her uh, go uh, gosh, like maybe the very beginning of the podcast, probably like yes. episode six or seven or something. Um, but they did tremendous work around food insecurity and looking at food deserts. And um, there was a, a few of them that worked together around that. But it's it's so hard to talk about because you don't want to come off like you're offending someone mm -hmm. by saying, hey, I think that you are in need is that right? You know, you don't want right. to, you don't want to come off and sound really rude and offensive towards someone either, but my goodness on the receiving end, if you really need that help, how amazing does it feel to, to know that someone cares and is looking out for you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it is um, in so many areas, it's awareness. I mean, another talk I did earlier this week was for sexual assault awareness month. And Sexual assault is another thing that is just this very taboo topic. And I think when we look at the numbers, I mean, it is so yeah. common, right? Yeah. There are yeah. so many survivors. And I, I tried to say to them, like, assume in every group that yeah. there's a survivor in your group, right? I mean, it's it's so prevalent. And if we can just get to a place of understanding that it is, you know, I don't want to say normalize. Of course, we don't want to normalize sexual assault, but you know, understanding that being a survivor is not a um, a secret thing that we have to make sure that we we don't ever address. Like, yes. let's just make it okay that you know, like, uh, talk about sexual assault awareness month, but also in other months of the year. Just like, That's right. hey, I don't know, I just finished this great book or this movie that really shone a light on sexual assault, and I hope that you all know that there are these great resources that we have. If anybody needs them, or if you know anybody who might, please share them. Yeah. Right. It's something so simple, right? It's so simple, but it goes such a long way. Just mm -hmm. like saying, Hey, how are you really? Like, how are you doing yeah. today? Um, I'm wondering just uh, because you had just done that talk recently, do you have any um, statistics or anything that you'd like to share just to bring some awareness around the sexual assault piece or anything that you can recall from, from talking about that? Cause to your point, it is a tremendous, um, uh, I want to say like a taboo topic at the dinner table, so to speak, you, you know, yeah. we're not talking about it in our, in our homes or uh, around the just... conference table. Right. I mean, yeah. it, if you can't talk about it at home, where can you? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So the statistics that I shared earlier this week are, um, this is from the CDC, that one in four women and one in 26 men have experienced rape or attempted rape. Um, PTSD among rape survivors, they are estimating of somewhere between 50 and 90 percent of rape cases. Mm -hmm. um, and then this was one that really stood out for people. 50% of rape survivors will lose or quit their jobs within a year of the assault due to the mental and physical health impacts of it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and, and as I tried to stress in this talk, that is not, um, that is not like predictive. That is like what we have seen in the past. And yeah. so therefore we have a responsibility to do yeah. what we can to bring that number down. And part of that is by making it okay to talk about it, to make it okay for people to get the support that they need, take time off if they need, mm -hmm. um, get the mental health uh, counseling resources that are needed for them to be able to, to kind of go on the healing journey at the, at the pace that they want to, so that they Absolutely. can continue to thrive which of course opens up all those other conversations I wanted to get into. And I know we don't have time to, but around policy, right? I mean, mm. so much of DC and politics and, and the ripple effect of decisions that are made um, where some of those resources are not always available to folks. So even the organizations that may then build the awareness, like, okay, this is a resource that is needed and there are systemic barriers at play. No. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been talking with a number of organizations recently about how to get people to use the mental health resources more. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. sure you've seen some of these statistics that organizations it's, will have, yeah, an EAP, and it's like a tiny little fraction of people will ever use it. It's alarming. I mean, there's so many things. It's so alarming on so many different levels. And without going into a whole full-fledged rant about this i will say <laughs> like even in north carolina this is like something i've definitely been on my soapbox about because i'm permanently relocating to north carolina and would like to practice therapy in north carolina but the state does not offer licensing reciprocity and so when i think about that and i think about all the stuff on the news every single day about how this state is in a state of crisis and mental health flux of like tons of kids are suffering and i'm thinking well, what about policy guys are we going to look mm -hmm. at how come you've made it so incredibly challenging for transplants to come into the state and provide practice so i'm actually in a support group for therapists who are transplants that are all living in north carolina and providing care to people in other states because they can't treat the people where they live wow it just seems so short-sighted i mean it's after it's what we've just been blowing. through as a right. nation. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's what I mean. Like I'm trying, I'm being calm right now. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I'm, I'm, keeping, I'm keeping my blood pressure at a nice pace today. We're not messing up today, but I got to tell you, like, there's like those systemic things I get so, so riled up by like the advocacy side of me wants yeah. to be like you know what i'm quitting my job and i'm going to become a lobbyist because right. <laughs> it's like yes. it's just i just get so upset because people don't see the ripple effect of how like these what could be like really small changes like showing up and voting right could right. make this huge difference for other people's quality of lives and even surviving and having a life and and not losing their life to something like suicide um, so I just, I really respect and appreciate what you're doing, um, 
you know, when we talk about fixing, right, it's just focusing on your locus of control. Mm -hmm. And I love that you are focusing on your locus of control through education and consulting and working with companies. And, um, you know, if you are still doing the work with the Justice Department, God bless and thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We need it. Well, I do think, and this is, I guess, a more positive, um, you know, perception. I I do see more and more organizations recognizing that this is something that they have to prioritize. And that's companies, it's also higher ed, it's nonprofit organizations, it's government agencies. Um, I think that it has become almost impossible to ignore some of the mental health challenges um, yeah. and the impact that it's having on on the, the organization's mission. And so I am seeing a lot more energy around it. People say, we've got to figure out something to do here. Yes, yes, we must do that. And, and as a collective, like it is time for us to figure out something as a collective to, to keep uniting and working as a team to, to tackle this because as humans, we need each other. We are nothing without each other. Yeah, I absolutely. agree. And I'd, I'd love, so this light bulb just went off in my head because <clears throat> I think change starts at the ground level, right? So suppose someone's listening to this right now and says, crap, the company I work for doesn't do any of that, but they're not in a leadership position. You know, they're just somebody who shows up to work, who does a good job and who um, is listening and paying attention. How would you recommend for that person to bring it up to their leadership team? What does that look like to say, hey, I see a gap. And here's a way we could start working towards it. Like what are some tools or resources? Yeah, I think um, it is helpful first to approach it with uh, a goal of educating. Often, if you have been in a work situation for a while that is not very empathetic, there can be some built up. (laughs) No. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Resistation, (laughs) perhaps. And I will tell you that if you come into it with a spirit of frustration, it will not, you won't be as effective as as you might hope. So um, it helps, I think, sometimes to first engage your own empathy and recognize that the leadership may have had their own um, experiences that have been (laughs) negative, maybe, um, around empathy. Um, There was an amazing study that Uh, Let me just see. Um, Business Solver did where they found that 78% of CEOs lacked confidence in their empathy and 76% worried that they'd be seen as weak if they expressed empathy at work. So it is, yeah, just something to be aware of that a lot of people, I mean, we talked earlier about how leaders just jump right to problem solving Mm -hmm. because that's what they're used to. So kind of understand that for them, they may have had a negative experience in the past or they might be insecure about their own empathy. So try to approach them with your own sense of empathy and a desire to help. Um, Then I think it's helpful to introduce the topic. And there's a lot of great research out there. You know, Gallup has a state of the global workforce um, report from last year, has tremendous information. There's um, some recent information about uh, managers have a greater impact on mental health than doctors and therapists. Did you all see this? I I did not. Yeah, I, I mean, said, I believe yeah, it. Equal to spouses, the manager hasn't has because has it's power. family. You're yeah. with them all the time. True. Yep. 
Absolutely. So I like to come armed with statistics because they need to hear the business case, but it's not hard to make. Um, And then just start to share some tools with them, like this podcast, send them this podcast and yeah, get them thinking about it. Share. There's a ton, you know, the, um, Harvard Business Review article that uh, Lindsay mentioned earlier. It's called We Need Trauma-Informed Workplaces. You can just do a Google search and send that to them. Um, Just look around for some resources that are out there that are just easy things to start to educate them. And then what I find helpful is um, specific guidance, right? Like, hey, did you know, Amber mentioned that it's really helpful if you start an email with like, (laughs) (laughs) hope you're doing well, (laughs) you know, give them very short, actionable, like, oh, it turns out teams have higher psychological safety if managers check in once a week. So give them actionable things. And then I gotta say, praise. I mean, I see this as a parent and boy, it worked as a manager too. Like everybody wants to feel like they're doing a good job. So um, when you see them start to do it, call it out and say, hey, I noticed that at the beginning of staff meeting, you asked how everybody was feeling and you did a check-in. I thought that was great. And I felt like it really helped. So kind of call it out and and that can really help shift their own perception of themselves as empathetic leaders. Oh gosh, big time. I'm so glad that you touched on that stuff too, because another little thing that is kind of my own light bulb that's going off over here is, is rooted in a conversation I had with someone in intelligence the other day. And, um, we were discussing how there is such a drastic shift across generations and the approach to handling situations as a whole. And obviously there's a lot of stuff in the news as, as to this huge intelligence leak that just took place um, in terms of where loyalty lies and, and, and how, you know, your average will say uh, 18 to even 25 year olds, you know, in their mindset and what they're looking for. Um, and so when I think of CEOs there, they tend to be, there's an age gap, generally speaking. And so yep. I do think that a big part of your work is also filling that gap because the people who are in that generational gap of 18 to 25 or what have you, their understanding and expectation around empathy being present or there being mindfulness or there being um, a more, Um, like a more open-minded culture as a whole, uh, their expectation of that is very high. And then you compare it to the statistics of the CEO who is like, oh no, I'm going to appear like I'm weak if I show empathy. And it's like, well, there goes your employee retention rate, but. Right. I know. Well, and isn't that wonderful though, to think that that generation is asking for so much more from the workplace because that's that's it's really a, the, the change is coming you know oh yes <laughs> and that's just it it's, it's like the other people have to <laughs> totally. right it is here and now there's a ton of people that have to to mm-hmm. to keep up so with that being said Catherine, um i'm so grateful that you came on to talk with us and share everything i want to make sure that our listeners have an opportunity to find you and if they want to hire you as a consultant or learn more about what you do or how to find someone that does something that you do what is your website? How can people find you? Yeah, probably the easiest way is it's just katherinemanning.com. Um, and the only thing is how you spell Catherine. There's like a million different ways, right? So yes. I'm K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E. 
um, manning.com and you'll see everything on there. I have articles and how to work with me and lots of information there. Excellent. We will put that in the show notes guys so that you can just click on the link and make it really easy because we love efficiency around here. Absolutely. <laughs> and while you're clicking on the link and looking at all of that wonderful information, you can go ahead and give us a five-star review. You can go ahead and share the episode and the podcast with a friend. Um, we absolutely value that. And we're so grateful for folks when they do take that extra five, 10 seconds, because it helps yes. us to further our reach and to help spread the message. Because just like we've talked about today, the more we talk about this, the more we make it acceptable, normal, mm -hmm. comfortable to have these harder, more vulnerable discussions, the more likely they are to occur and the easier and more effective they become. So share away. Find That's us right. everywhere. <laughs> so in short, you guys are going to take this episode and send it to your boss. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's been a pleasure. You guys, thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for being loyal, staying tuned uh, every single Tuesday. So until next time, guys, see you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. Bye y'all. And we all say everything is going to just fine it's gonna fall into place the sun is gonna set on your terrible day